Dear Lord, we are so thankful for your love for us. And Father, we thank you for your kindness, your grace, your mercy, your loving kindness, your compassion. And that uh, you sent your son and he willingly came and took on human flesh, became uh, a human like us, yet with no sin. Thank you that he uh, did your will to the end, that he lived the perfect life and that he died and bore our sins in his body on the cross and rose from the dead. Thank you, Lord God, for your son, Jesus. I pray as we look into your word today, you will help renew our minds, refresh our outlook, help us to see things from above rather than from below, so that you'd be glorified in our actions this Christmas season and in our our thoughts. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we begin a little short break from our Second Thessalonians um, series to look at uh, Christmas as revealed in the Word of God. And it's uh, so easy to get caught up in all the, the stuff of this time uh, and to really, on a practical basis, forget the tremendous reality of what God has done. And we can even have the familiar Christmas stories that we have in Luke and, and in uh, Matthew and even in even in Mark and John, they're in there. You And we can take them for granted. We can, uh, in a sense, really forget what God has declared concerning his son Jesus. So it's my desire to remind myself and to remind us of these things uh, so that our hearts and minds are focused on the Lord this Christmas season and just praising him for what he's done for us through his son Jesus. So with that in mind, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 18 to 25, where we're going to see the birth of Jesus, and ultimately we're going to see God with us. And again, you might be familiar with this, so you might uh, be casual uh, with the truth, but we mustn't be that way. Uh, We must uh, tremble before his word when we see what he has declared and revealed concerning his son, and and, uh, look at it in awe and wonder and refresh our hearts and minds concerning what God has done for us in Christ. Now, just a brief uh, context of the book of Matthew. We know that uh, Matthew is not specifically named as the author, but it's been accepted historically that he is the author. There's no doubt about that. Indeed, the early church universally, without contention, understood that Matthew was the author. Now, Matthew obviously was inspired by the Spirit of God, so ultimately it's God's word that was brought forth, as we'll see today. Now, Matthew, or Levi, which was his formal name, was a tax collector. He was a sinner called to repentance by Jesus Christ. And we see in Matthew 9 and Luke 5 that Jesus calls him to follow him, and he does. And he does. You see, the Lord Jesus calls each and every one of us to follow him, to believe the gospel, to reject our sinful life, and to believe in Christ and receive new and eternal life, and then to follow the Lord Jesus, to die to ourselves and to live to God because of what Christ has done for us. And Matthew turned, and he followed Christ. He followed Christ. 
Now, the book of Matthew is about Jesus Christ, uh, the King of the Jews, who is the Savior of the world. And within Matthew, we have the presentation of Jesus Christ as the King of the Jews. And uh, certainly, if the King is present, we have his teaching concerning the kingdom. And then we see within that the, uh, rede- the rejection and opposition to King Jesus by the Jews. Uh, this rejection culminating in his crucifixion, the venue in which God would bring about salvation, a salvation rejected by his very own people, which would be offered to all. And so here, earlier in chapter 1, we have uh, verse 1, which says Matthew is about Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. More specifically, that Jesus fulfills the Davidic covenant, the agreement God made, shared with David, that on his, in his, in his line, there would be a king ruling on the throne forever. He also fulfills the covenant, uh, that was brought about by Abraham, that in his seed, all the nations would be blessed. And it is through the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ, that salvation is offered to the whole world. And then there was the genealogy, more specifically from Joseph's side, which revealed that Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne of David. And yet within that, we see that he was born physically of a woman, Mary. So with that in mind, let's look at the Christmas story revealed in Matthew chapter 1. And so let's begin as we look at Joseph's difficulty or dilemma or problem or issue. Look at verse uh, 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. Now, verse 18 makes it clear that this passage is about the, ver- the birth of Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. This is what it's about. You know, and as we look in Scripture, we have a few passages that particularly declare the reality of the birth of Jesus Christ. And these are the ones we want to go to for information from God concerning the birth of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, the term Jesus, we'll look at this more closely when we get to verse 21, but the term Jesus is the Lord's human name. It was given to him, as we will see, at birth. Now, Jesus is a transliteration of the Hebrew name Yeshua or Joshua, and it literally means Yahweh is salvation, or the great I am, the Lord is salvation. So when you think of the name Jesus, think of God, the Lord, the sovereign of the universe, is salvation. And he's right there. That's who it is. Jesus is uh, the Lord who is salvation. And yet it also, we see the title here, the birth of Jesus Christ is was as follows. The term Christ is a title. It is the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew term Messiah, Messiah which means uh, anointed one. And it speaks of Jesus as the anointed one, the king of the Jews. He is the Christ. He is the rightful king in whom God would reveal would need to suffer for the glories to follow. He's the Christ. So the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. 
And again, this points out to the birth of Jesus Christ. What's a birth? We all understand that. Each one of us have been born. The only ones that weren't born were Adam and Eve. And we have, every single one of us has gone through that process, right? It says the birth of Jesus Christ. This speaks of humanity. Humanity. The birth of the Lord is salvation, the King of Kings, is as such, was as such. That's what this title says. That's what this is about. Now, what leads up to our passage, as I mentioned earlier, was the genealogy, Jesus' genealogy through Joseph. We see Mary's in, in Luke, but Jesus' through Joseph, in which we see that Jesus is of Joseph's line, but yet physically from Mary. Verse 16, look back a little bit. And to Jacob was born Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom was born Jesus, who is called the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, the Christ. That's a title. And so we see now springing from this genealogy is the birth uh, account of Jesus Christ, and it was as follows. Middle verse 18, When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. So we're reminded right away that Jesus' mother is Mary. Jesus' mother is Mary. When his mother Mary. This is just amazing to think about. We need to think more about what God has done. When his mother. And then look at the account. Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. We see that Jesus' mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Now, what does this mean, this betrothal? We, we don't have that these days. It was, it was uh, something we would see in the, with the Jews in the Old Testament and in Jesus' time. And the betrothal period, although somewhat like an engagement, was actually different than an engagement as we would see today. In that time, marriage had two stages. There was the betrothal period and then the wedding itself. Now, the betrothal was instigated by two families or two individuals, and it was considered a marriage contract for proposed marriage. It was a binding contract, a binding promise. So much so that if you had entered into this period, then you were considered to be husband and wife, even though the wedding had not come yet. That's why you would need a divorce at that point if there was a separation, because it was considered binding. Now, this period was usually about 12 months, or it could be shorter, but usually around 12 months. And then one of the main purposes of this period was to uh, reveal and protect uh, the husband in the context of a wife. Uh, obviously, if someone were to become pregnant within that 12 months, then you would know, right? Or if someone was pregnant when they had been betrothed, but before that time is up, you would know that something was up. Indeed, the Apostle Paul uses this idea of betrothal as a metaphor concerning his interactions with the Corinthian church. Look to 2 Corinthians. He uses this very illustration. And as we're going to see, we're in that period right now. The wedding hasn't happened. And God is seeing if you're really faithful or not. God is seeing if, you're a, if you are an adulterer spiritually or not. We're in that period right now. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, he says, I wish you would bear with me a little foolishness. Now, they were calling him fool, so he says, okay, I wish you'd bear a little foolishness with me. 
But indeed, you are bearing with me, for I am jealous with you, for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, that is to Christ, that I might present you as a pure virgin. That's the process of the betrothal period. And Paul is using it metaphorically here. He says, But I am afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of a devotion to Christ. And he goes on. So we are in that period, in a sense, until the bridegroom comes and we have the wedding. You see, and God is testing us and pointing out where we really are, those who would name his name, those who would claim his name. To see if we're faithful, if we're really his, by the way, or if we're, in a sense, fornicators or adulterers spiritually in that time. So then, he's saying here, Paul is saying, I arranged you to Christ. I brought the truth to you about your supposed salvation, about trusting Christ. And I'm concerned you're not a pure virgin. I'm concerned about that, that Satan might have led you astray, that you've committed adultery. And he's talk about the false apostles later, later. So ultimately we have in this idea, the idea of protection, a period of time in which one is observed to see if they are truly going to be faithful. And the same thing for us. And then there is the wedding, and that is when the betrothal period ends gloriously as the husband arrives and the woman is presented as a beautiful virgin bride to her husband. And they are married, and then they consummate the marriage physically. So then Mary and Joseph had entered into this binding contract. They were betrothed. And this betrothal took place, you know, obviously before someone got married, but usually in the late teens. So most likely Mary was a young woman. We don't know how old Joseph was, but by the time Jesus was crucified, Joseph wasn't around. He uh, he had passed away. So maybe he was older than Mary. Not sure. Not sure. We don't know. But he's here in this passage. And so we have this binding contract And as we're going to see, we know from Scripture that she was a godly woman. She was not ungodly and had had been unfaithful during this time. We're going to see she was a godly woman. She was a godly woman. You might remember, if you've heard it or seen it or read it, and I encourage you to do so, Mary's response to the angel Gabriel's declaration that she would become pregnant by the Holy Spirit, bringing forth the Savior. And do you remember what she shared with Elizabeth, her cousin? Look at Luke chapter 1, verse 46. This is her response. Luke chapter 1, verse 46. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Just on a side note, don't ever buy into the false doctrine of the Catholic Church that Mary was uh, was sinless in a sense. No way. She says, God, my Savior. She needed a Savior just like we need a Savior. Just like every human being since Adam. And so here, for he has regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things, great things um, uh, for me and his ho- in his holy name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his right arm. He has scattered those who were proud in their thoughts of their heart. By the way, that's where you think it's in your heart. He brought down the rulers from their thrones. He has exalted those who were humble. And uh, 
He has filled the hungry with good things. He has sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to and his offspring forever. As we're going to see, Mary is a godly woman. She's got it. She had kept herself a virgin. Now, what about Joseph? What do we know about him? Well, earlier in chapter 1, we saw he's in the line of David. We know from Scripture, Matthew 13, 55, he was a carpenter. We know he probably wasn't wealthy because when they went to offer the sacrifice after Jesus had been born in Luke 2, 24, they offered turtle doves, which meant they were probably not that wealthy. They both came from Nazareth, which was not a wealthy area of Israel. And we know from our passage, as we'll see today, that he was declared by God to be a righteous man. So back in our passage, continuing, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they had come together. They had not come together. Mary was kept a virgin, as we will see, until after Jesus was born. Luke makes this quite clear, that Joseph was engaged to a virgin. And the Greek word translated virgin means just that, virgin. Take a look at Luke chapter 1 again. Let's go back to verse 26. Luke 1, 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what type, kind of salutation this might be. And the angel said to her, this is verse 30, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And he will be great and called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign in the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be? How can this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for this reason, the Holy Spirit, holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, be it done according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And then we have what I read earlier of her response. Her response. So it's absolutely crucial that we understand that they had not come together yet. Mary was a virgin. And then notice, here's the point of the verse. Now, the birth of Jesus, back in Matthew 1.18, was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child. Now, just as we saw in the Gospel of Luke, Mary had been informed previously that she would bear a son, that the child conceived in her womb was of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, it would be the Son of God. But what about Joseph? Now, historically, those who were betrothed together didn't spend all the time together like engaged couples these days. And indeed, in Luke 1, where Mary is visiting Elizabeth, Joseph was nowhere to be seen. 
So Mary is informed before the conception by the Holy Spirit, by the angel of Gabriel, but evidently Joseph didn't have any knowledge of this. And here we go. She was found to be with child. And you think about this, humanly speaking, this must have been incredibly troubling for Joseph, being a righteous man. His bride during this betrothal period is now pregnant. Mary, what's going on? What's happened here? Now, Mary may have told him what the angel Gabriel had shared with him. We don't know. We don't have any recording of that. But the bottom line um, for Joseph, she was found with child, and it wasn't his child. That's the bottom line. Now, before we continue on, before you might be tempted to, to think something that is terribly wrong, our passage says, before they came together, she was found to be a child. Look at this portion. You need to see this. By the Holy Spirit. This was not by any man that Mary was found to be with child, but by the Holy Spirit. Now we come to something that's difficult to wrap our heads around. It's not the virgin birth, it's the virgin conception. And then there would be the virgin birth. She was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. This speaks of the conception of Jesus in the womb of a virgin by means of the Holy Spirit. And from man's point of view, this is impossible. But with all God, all things are possible. We just read that. So don't try to figure it out. Just believe what God says. And if you're a believer, you're going to go, yes, my sheep, Jesus says, hear my voice. So we have the conception of it, of a, uh, of Jesus in the womb of a virgin. And God hasn't told us how. But what we do know is because it's of the Holy Spirit, as we saw in the Gospel of Luke, the child shall be called the Son of God. God the Son. God the Son took on human flesh. So back in our passage, Joseph is hit with a, with a whopper. Mary is pregnant, and he's not the father. Think about the reality of that. And Joseph at this point evidently didn't have any revelation directly from the Lord like we do and like Mary did. So it's fully understandable that he, being righteous, would desire to do the right thing. If you have a relationship with the living God and you are following him, you've been made righteous because of faith in there, the seed of Abraham who would come, and you've trusted in Christ in that sense, then you're going to want to do what's right. We don't always do it right, but we want to do what's right. We want to do what's right. And he, being righteous desire to do the right thing according to God's word. He wanted to do what God wanted him to do in this circumstance. Again, our passage, uh, verse 19, And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man. Could the Lord say that about you? Are you a righteous man or woman? Are your actions evidenced of his righteousness in you? And not wanting to disgrace her. This is, we'll see, Joseph's a good guy. Desire to put her away secretly. He's got an agonizing dilemma. It's during the betrothal and she's got, she's pregnant. It's now obvious. And, uh, he knows it's not his son. And you can imagine Joseph was fearful about this because later on the angel's going to say to him, Joseph, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. Take her as your wife. Don't fear taking her as your wife. So she was found to be a child, and so Joseph says, um, 
And Joseph, her husband, excuse me, Matthew says of Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. Remember, in the betrothal, you were considered married at that point, even though you hadn't come together. So being a righteous man, continually habitually. So there's two things. Joseph, two things. Being a righteous man, uh, being righteous, literally, that's a participle, not wanting to disgrace her. Being righteous, not wanting to disgrace her. Joseph was a godly man. He had a real relationship with the living God. He was a righteous man who obeyed the Lord. He was an Old Testament saint. And he was probably saying to himself, how can I marry her? She's violated the law. I don't get it. I don't understand it, but I need to do what God says. But notice, he was not only a righteous man, he wasn't a self-righteous man. He was a righteous man. And self-righteous would would do things externally without care for those around. He was not self-righteous. He was righteous because of Christ. Righteous man, Joseph, was also a merciful man. And not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. Now, for Joseph, biblically speaking, there were two basic possibilities for him to obey God in this circumstance. What does he do? What does he do? He could charge her in public, and she would be brought to trial and convicted in shame. That's possible. The other possibility would be to send her away to divorce her secretly. And in Deuteronomy 24, because of man's hardness of heart, Jesus would share in Matthew 19, uh, we see the provision of sending her away privately by giving her a certificate of divorce. So his righteous response for him and to address Mary would be this, to put her away, but he desired to do it secretly, not to shame her. He's a gracious man. He's a gracious man. And not wanting to disgrace her. Desire to put her away secret. Can you imagine what he's going through? He's getting ready to be married. She's found with child. He knows he needs to do the right thing, so he's going to put her away, divorce her secretly, and he doesn't want to shame her. So that's Joseph's response. And what I find really amazing about this is when you follow the Lord and you trust in him and you try to do what he wants you to do based on the revelation he's given you in his word, he's going to guide you. He's going to lead you. And if it's not exactly what he wants to do, he's going to intervene. And that's exactly what God does. Notice God's faithful intervention. Verse 20. But there's a contrast. When he had considered this, thought about it, Behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. So Joseph is considering and pondering this action, and evidently he falls asleep, and he starts dreaming. Now, in contrast to Joseph's righteous desire, based on his limited information, we see that, but, we have God sending an angel. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying. So we have an angel of the Lord. Now, here, although it's in the context of a dream here in the Old Testament, the Lord does speak to him. It is the Lord speaking in this context. And we know in regards to the Old Testament that God, after he spoke long ago through the prophets and the fathers in many portions and in many ways, 
has spoken to, to us through his Son. We have the completed revelation concerning Jesus Christ in our word. But before it was complete, as God was bringing that revelation forth, he brought it forth bit by bit, time by time, piece by piece. And he did use things like dreams back then. But now we have the completed word of God. And so then we have an angel of the Lord, a messenger of the Lord. It's not the term the messenger of the Lord as we see in the Old Testament concerning pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, the one who represents him. Then, then we have those who specifically represent him. And so it's an angel, not the angel of the Lord. It's simply an angelic messenger. We obviously see Gabriel coming to, to Mary and Luke. And so first of all, what does the angel say? Said, appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, end of 20, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Joseph's asleep. God appears to him. An angel appears to him in the dream. It says, Joseph, son of David. Interesting title. Here is God's perspective of Joseph. He's in the line of David. Joseph being Jesus' legal father entitled Jesus to be the king of the Jews, to sit on the throne. And I believe right at the nick of time, the Lord intervenes through the angel and stops Joseph and tells him not to fear, and I paraphrase, but to marry Mary, right? Brothers and sisters, I mentioned this earlier, but this is very encouraging. When you desire to do what's right, and you are obeying the truth that you know from a right heart, not a self-righteous heart. God is faithful to guide you and lead you. And he intervened right in the nick of time here. Now he intervenes nowadays through showing us other passages or people coming alongside from the Lord and sharing his word to us, helping us see, or circumstances he brings about. God is faithful. God is faithful. Trust the Lord. Plan your way in the context of obedience to his word by his spirit and step out in obedience, but trust him to direct your steps. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Sometimes you think of things that you think the Lord might want you to do in your life. And you plan them, but you trust him because he's faithful. And if your heart of hearts is willing to do whatever he wants, then he'll lead you. If you're not willing to do whatever he wants, then you're leading yourself, by the way. If you can't say in the midst of any decision, whatever your will is, Lord, I'll do whatever you want, even not this decision, then it's not the Lord, and that's you. But when you give it over completely and humble yourself before him, Lord, this is what I want to do. This is what I think you want me to do. These are the other options. I don't want to do this, but, Lord, I'm willing to do it. When you do that, then he's going to guide you. You see, when you trust in the Lord with all your heart, and you don't lean on your own understanding, he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna take you in the way he wants you to go. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He will make your paths straight. Straight. God is faithful. So he intervenes through the angel to Joseph and says, don't fear. Don't be afraid to marry Mary, but marry her. Mary. And he's going to explain why. And this is the most glorious explanation, I believe, in the scriptures. Because he says here, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Don't be afraid to marry her. She's not a fornicator. She hasn't gone out with other men. She's not, she didn't do anything wrong. 
For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Yeshua. The Lord is salvation. Jesus. For it is he who will save his people from their sins. Wow. Awesome. Now, there's no explanation on how this brought about. This is a God thing, but he wants us to know the simple truth that that which has been conceived, at this point it was, it did happen already. She was found to be a child, is of the Holy Spirit. And if you'll remember, we saw in the book of Luke that, uh, that uh, she responds back to the angel, how can this be? Since I'm a virgin. And the angel answered and said to her, this is Luke chapter 135, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and with the power of the Most High will overshadow you. This is how this happens. And for that reason, the Holy Offspring shall be called the Son of God. For that reason. So then, we have the angel telling him to marry Mary because God is being brought forth in her womb. That's pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing. And your son shall be called God, or the God the Son, the Son of God. You know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being by him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Colossians 1.19, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of deity to dwell in him. Speaking of Jesus. Colossians 2.9, for in him the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, in a human body. Fully God and fully man. The amazing reality of the incarnation. So then, God's taking on human flesh. As we see, it's not a mere man who saves. It is God who became a man who saves. And we'll see that. Indeed, Jesus Christ is the God-man who is the Savior of the world. And no matter what someone says, the denial of the virgin conception and virgin birth completely undermines the deity of Jesus Christ. You have these uh, theologians and scholars on PBS or whatever who say uh, they don't believe this, it couldn't happen. Well... They don't believe the truth of what God has revealed in his word. And that attacks the deity of Jesus Christ. But Jesus, as I mentioned before, said, My sheep hear my voice. If you've been delivered by Jesus Christ, if you've humbled yourself and repented of your sins and truly trusted in Christ, you've received his spirit, and you have the ability now to have his word written on your hearts, rather than a hard heart that doesn't believe. So then... For that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she shall bear a son. Verse 21, and she shall bear a son. Jesus was literally born of a woman. We see that in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Same process as each and every one of us. Carl read this for us earlier. It's the incarnation. It's, it's God taking on human flesh. Uh, we have in Hebrews chapter uh, 10 a conversation 
This is amazing. Between God the Son and the Father before God the Son took on human flesh. It's quite amazing. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5. Therefore, when he comes into the world, speaking of Christ coming into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offerings thou hast, and offering thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for me. God the Son came and took on human flesh. He says here, In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. It is in the role of the book it is written to me, to do thy will, O God. And then verse 10 of Hebrews 10, By this will, that's God taking on human flesh, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He says, And you shall bear a son, and you shall, verse 21, back in our passage, you shall call his name Jesus. Call him the I am, the great I am, is salvation. That's Jesus. That's what Jesus means. The I am, the term Yahweh, the first person of to be in Hebrew. I am. Yeshua, Yeshua, the Lord is salvation. Yahweh saves. We see that. Now what's interesting is uh, some translators, uh, they try to take the vowel points from Adonai and they added them to Yahweh and that's where we get Jehovah. It's a mistransliteration. But we know what it means, right? So then, you shall name him Jesus. The Lord is salvation. So do you understand the significance of Jesus' name? And notice, let's read verse 121 again, and she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Then look at why. This is so important, as I mentioned. For it is he who will save his people from their sins. That's the issue. God is a righteous God who has to judge sin. And you will be eternally damned in punishment for your sin because God is righteous. And so he sent his own son as the savior from his own judgment. Isn't that amazing? to save you from the judgment of God that he must bring forth being righteous and holy, but yet he's merciful, loving, and kind, so he poured out his wrath on his son instead. Instead. Instead of you. You see, the reality is God is so gracious and he was willing, unwilling, unwilling to leave mankind in their sin. And he had a plan from the very beginning as he shared uh, with, uh, with, with, with Adam, we see Eve, that in her seed all the nations would be blessed, or in her seed would, would crush the serpent's head, but then later on with Abraham, in his seed all the nations would be blessed. You see, because there are none righteous, God is righteous and there are none righteous, and all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the Lord Jesus, through his word, makes it clear, Behold, all souls are mine, Ezekiel 18.4. The soul of the Father and the swells the Son is mine. The soul that sins will die. Righteous God who's holy and must judge sin, but yet he's gracious and kind. And he gave his son Jesus to die for our sins. And she will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. For it is he who will save his people from their sins. You see, Jesus came to pay the penalty for our sins. 
We need a Savior. That's what Christmas is about. That's why we celebrate it, because God sent his Son, and he took on human flesh. That's what it's about. See, you need someone to pay for your sins, and you can't do it. Only the perfect, sinless, spotless Lamb of God could do so. 1 John 2, 2, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, not only ours, but for those of the whole world. The term propitiation means satisfaction, but it carries a sense of mercy. It derives from the word that was used for mercy seat. Christ is the satisfaction for the sin issue, if you will believe in him. If you believe in him. In Acts chapter 4, verse 10, we see... The statement from Peter, let it be known to you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands before you in good health, speaking of someone who was healed. And he, speaking of Jesus, is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but became the very cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. It's only through Christ. You see, the Lord is salvation. Baptism doesn't save you. Communion doesn't impart grace. Your works don't save you. Your church doesn't save you. The Jesus of the Mormons doesn't save you because he's a different Jesus. The Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses doesn't save you because they think he's an angel, not God the Son. The Jesus of the Catholic Church does not save you because he's still on the cross. And his work isn't finished in their eyes. And it must continue through the sacraments and it rests on your works. That will not save you. There are other gospels out there. There are other false gospels out there. There are other Jesuses out there. You say, what do you mean? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. For I am jealous, and I read this earlier with a, maybe it's 10, maybe 10 or 11, you can look it up. May have quoted the wrong one earlier, but I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betroth you to one husband through Christ that I might present you as a pure virgin, but I'm afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached. Just because they say Jesus doesn't mean it's the Jesus of Scripture. You see, what we see in Scripture is that God the Son took on human flesh. He lived the perfect life and he died for our sins. So then, we have the truth that only one saves you from your sins, and that is Jesus, as revealed in the Scriptures. The Son of God who took on human flesh, lived the perfect life, and died for your sins and rose from the dead. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Well, have you believed in the Jesus of Scripture? You may even believe in the right Jesus, but if you don't believe you're a sinner in the way God declares you are, then you haven't believed. Have you come to him in humility, recognizing you're a sinner worthy of his judgment, and that Jesus Christ brings salvation alone? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is indeed the Savior of the world. So then, we've seen Joseph's dilemma. Mary is pregnant. Joseph was being righteous, desires to put her away. And then uh, the angel intervenes. God intervenes through the angel. 
commands him to take Mary as his wife because the child is of the Holy Spirit. He's God, and the child will become flesh, is, is flesh, has become flesh, and you'll name him Jesus because it is he who saves his people from their sins. He is the one who saves us from our sins. So then, we have an explanation as we finish up here. Look at verse 22. At this point, Matthew, inspired by the Spirit, gives the readers an explanation, gives us an explanation. Now, all that took place, that was, all this took place, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and she shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which is translated means God with us. He says, all this took place. The Lord, notice that it is the Lord spoken by the Lord through the prophet. God speaks through his servants. We see that in the Old Testament. We see the reality that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. You just can't take God's word and say, I think this is what it means. Because God had an intent because he spoke it. As of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. The prophet didn't think, hmm, I'm going to say this. No, God spoke through them. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Second Peter chapter 1, 21 and 22. Now all this took place back in our passage, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. And then we have, an, a, quote, then we have a quote of Isaiah 714, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, she shall bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. We'll turn to Isaiah. It's in the middle of your Bibles, Isaiah chapter 7. This is 700 years before Christ came. Even even non-believing scholars understand that this is 700 years before, but then they try to change the meaning. 700 years before we have this truth. Isaiah 714, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He's saying all this took place to fulfill this. To fulfill this. Now, I don't have time to go into the context of the book of Isaiah, but it's clear from the New Testament, even though scholars will say, well, virgin doesn't mean virgin on Isaiah. Well, that's just not true. But they'll say that. But in our text, it does mean that. We know for sure. So we understand that's what it means here. The reality is, this is a fulfillment of the prophecy concerning a virgin will have a child, bear for a child, and you shall name him Emmanuel. Emmanuel. You see, prophecy was fulfilled over and over again in the life, the birth, the life, and the death of Jesus Christ for our sins in the resurrection. God had laid forth his plan of salvation, the Old Testament prophecies, and the prophecies were fulfilled in Christ. Look for a second at Luke chapter 24. This is the day Jesus rose from the dead, and he's talking to those disciples walking away after knowing it was the third day. Luke 24, 25. And this is Christ speaking. He said, and he said to them, oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets had spoken. Foolish and stupid of heart, really, to believe all, to not believe all that they'd spoken. Why aren't you believing it? 
Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, that's the first five books, and the prophets, he says here, and all the prophets, and with all the prophets, he says, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. The term scripture means written word. Look down a little farther, Luke twenty four forty four, and he said to them, Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me, Jesus is saying, in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Therefore, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Are you willing to allow God to open your mind to understand the scriptures? Well, you've got to see your sin. You've got to humble yourself and believe in Christ. He opened their mind to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the third, on the third day, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem, and I'm doing that right now. So then, we have the prophecy. A virgin shall be a child, and we see that, and it's fulfilled here. What about the second part where it says, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, end of verse 23, back in Matthew, which means God with us. How is this fulfilled in Matthew? How is this fulfilled? Because first of all, we don't see anywhere in Scripture where someone actually calls Jesus Emmanuel. We don't see that. How is this fulfilled? And even in Isaiah 7, it says, She shall call him that. It was more direct, and the Spirit of God brought forth and says in our passage, They. Now, is that Mary and Joseph? Who is it? Although we can't be sure in the context, I don't believe, well, I do know who it isn't. Non-believers are certainly not calling him Emmanuel, God with us. We know they're not doing that. You see, because they are separate from Christ, Ephesians 2.12, having no hope and without God in the world. So no matter what you think, if you're still in your sin, separate from Christ, you are separate from God. The wages of sin is death. Your sin completely blocks a relationship with the Lord. And if you die in your sins, you will go into eternal separation in the lake of fire forever. And death in Hades was thrown into the lake of fire, the second death. It's the final one. The final separation forever because of sin. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So who are the they? I believe they are believers, by the way. He says, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God is with us. So how is the birth of Christ fulfilling this? In my view, it's not simply speaking of the incarnation because it says they will, it's future. I believe it's speaking of the fact that God dwelt among mankind for 33 years. It's speaking of the result of the incarnation. That Jesus would save his people from their sins. And now he is with us forever. Forever. God with us. If you've come to Christ, he is with you forever. We see this when he tells his disciples in Matthew 28. He says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God with us. In Hebrews chapter 13, he says, let your character be free of the love of money. Be content with what you have, for he has said himself, he's going to say, you've got me. For I will never desert you, I will never forsake you. 
The incarnation brings about the reality of God with mankind. My question to you, is he with you? Is he with you? Now, notice, as we finish up, Joseph is a good guy. He obeys. Look at verse 24. And Joseph arose from his sleep, and he did what the angel commanded him, and took her for his wife, and kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph is in the midst of a great trial, betrothed to Mary. His wife's pregnant. He's righteous, desiring to do the right thing, considers to divorce her secretly, dozes off. The Lord sends an angel, tells him what to do. So what does Joseph do? Does he say, I need to talk to a rabbi or a pastor to help me with this? I need to get some counseling because I, yeah, I know what I'm supposed to do, but this seems too weird for me. I don't know about this. No, Joseph has been given clear instructions. He's a righteous man, and he obeys. Joseph arose from his sleep and, and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Isn't that great? We need to be like that, folks. We need to arise from our sleep, in a sense, and do what God tells us to do. What is he telling you to do in his word in relationship to things in your life? What is he telling you to do? Are you like Joseph? Well, Joseph did it. He did exactly what he did. He took her as his wife. He kept her as a virgin until he gave, she gave birth to a son and called his name Jesus. And I'm so amazed at the obedience of God's true people in Scripture. By the way, obedience is an evidence, by the way. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Obedience is an evidence, and I'm amazed by it. I'm amazed at their obedience. So little truth. Even though Joseph had this intervention here, he didn't have all the truth we have. We have so much more truth. We have so much more revelation, and we are so disobedient at times. But I'm greatly amazed at that, to see God's people obeying his word in Scripture. But I'm also greatly grieved when people... For instance, come to me for advice concerning issues in their life, and yet they're unwilling to obey the clear commands of Scripture. They're focused on the fuzzies in lieu of obeying the clear clear commands. Joseph wasn't like that. But if you are like that, confess. Forgive if you need to, and trust the Lord and be obedient. But Joseph wasn't like that. He didn't go out saying, well, I really need to understand the virgin birth before I can obey the Lord. He just did what God told him to do. He did what he told him to do. And we can learn from that too. So then, we have Joseph's dilemma. It's not his child. Uh, He desired to do the right thing because he's a righteous man, mercifully. And the Lord intervened graciously pointing out to the great truth that God was taking on human flesh in Mary's womb. Don't fear Mary, Mary. And why? Because he is going to save his people from their sins. That's why. So then, the result of that is God with us. God with us. Separate because of sin, but God with us because of Christ. Can you say based on the declaration of truth that God is with you? Can you be one of those who says that God is with you? You see, because there's a gulf between us and God, and that's our sin. And until that's taken care of, we can't say so. And what we've seen, it's only through the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ that we can be reconciled to the living God. 
Well, some of you today are without God and without hope, and today is the day of salvation. God took on human flesh to bear your sins in his body on the cross, and he did so. Cry out to him in humility to save you from your sins. And those of us who've been saved, maybe we've forgotten the tremendous reality of what God did taking on human flesh to save us so that God could be with us forever. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for the truth that uh, you sent your son to die for our sins and that he willingly came to do your will and he offered himself the perfect sacrifice and that he bore our sins in his body in the cross that uh, we would die to sin and live to you and that he died and rose from the dead. Lord, may we not take this Christmas season flippantly. May we ever so be reminded of what you did through your son Jesus. The Lord is salvation. Pray this in his name. Amen.